Well, good evening. I'll try not to uh, dump the laptop here. <laughs> that would be bad. Got to get the computer glasses on, too. I'm really getting old. All right. So uh, it's really a privilege to be with you this evening to open up um, our teaching series on the Lord's Prayer. And um, I will tell you that uh, I thought that I was really fortunate that I got the lucky draw, if you will, uh, of the first lesson because I said to Bridget, I said, it's so short. (laughs) Our Father which art in heaven, how hard can that be? This is great. Um, Well, that was a big mistake in the sense that uh, I learned that there is a lot more to be said about the preface to the Lord's Prayer. So um, before I get started, would you please uh, pray with me? Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his, his word and on this teaching. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to open the word together, to hear about uh, your love for us and to think about the fatherhood of God. Uh, thank you, Lord, uh, for the Lord's Prayer, for you have uh, given us clear instruction as to how we should approach you. And uh, just ask your blessing on this teaching. I pray that nothing would be said that would not be reflective of your truth. So God, bless, uh, bless this time. Bless your word. May it reside in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so just a very uh, quick and uh, brief uh, outline as to what I would like to cover tonight. Um, first, we'll talk a little bit about the context and the structure of the Lord's Prayer, since this is the first lesson. Uh, And then we'll talk about, after talking about the structure, we'll talk about just very briefly about the introduction to the prayer. Uh, And then we're going to focus on the preface of the Lord's Prayer. And and so if you don't know what all of that means, that's fine. That's what we're going to kind of lay out here in the beginning. Uh, So first of all, um, it's important for us to know and remember that prayer is perhaps... Uh, the most important spiritual discipline, if, if not one of the most, it could be the most important spiritual discipline, and it is a means of grace. So some of the other means of grace that we partake in are uh, baptism, the sacraments, the, the Lord's Supper, um, reading and studying the Word, and worship. And so prayer is an extremely important part of the Christian's life. So it's logical to start by asking a basic question, what is prayer? And why should Christians pray, especially Christians who believe in the sovereignty of God uh, and a God who controls all things and ordains everything that comes to pass? So the first question, what is prayer? Uh, Thankfully, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 98, asks exactly that question. What is prayer? And the answer given by the Shorter Catechism is this. uh, Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins, and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So it's an offering up of desires in accordance with his will, in the name of Christ, including confession and including thankfulness to him, especially for the things that only he can bestow upon us. Right? And then the second question, why should we pray? And the Heidelberg Catechism has precisely 
that question. The Heidelberg Catechism question 116 asks this, why is prayer necessary for Christians? Why is prayer necessary? And the answer given is this, because it is the chief part of thankfulness which God requires of us and also because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit to those who with sincere desires continually ask them of him and are thankful for them. So you notice in those two responses to those two <clears throat> catechism questions, the word thankfulness comes up a lot in, in, its context, in the context of prayer. Why do we pray and why is it necessary for us to pray? Well, it, it is a way for us to express thankfulness to God. That's at least one aspect of prayer. And I think if you were to ask the average Christian um, out there today, um, how would you define prayer? I think most people would rightly say, Prayer is talking to God, is conversing with God. Uh, and it's a little more than that, but in, in its base, it is communicating with our Lord, is it not? Um, but God has given us a little bit more instruction than just, just talk to me, right? Uh, it's a little more than that. So among other things, prayer is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I want to read to you or reread to you the call to worship, which we just uh, heard a moment ago. Offer to God a, sa a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Philippians 4, 6-7 says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to, be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So prayer is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And prayer does what? Brings about the peace of God. It takes away anxiety. It's something that we need to do. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has this great quote that I really um, enjoyed reading. When joy and prayer are married... Their firstborn child is gratitude. When joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. So prayer at its core is deep gratitude for the Lord and what he has done for us. All right. So what has God instructed us to pray about? In other words, what has he instructed us to ask him for? The short answer to that question is this. Everything that is necessary for our bodies and for our souls. So if you had to answer the question, what should we pray about? Everything necessary for our bodies, so every physical need and every spiritual need. There's no need that's too great or too small that we can bring before the Lord. Matthew 6.33, our Lord Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's a spiritual aspect. And all these things will be added to you. And all of these things are the physical things that he has just mentioned prior to verse 33. In James 1.17, James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. I'm reading from the ESV. The King James and New King James, I like 
the way that it reads, where there is no variation or shadow of turning in God. There is no changing of God. There is no variation in God. And every good gift comes down from him. So by his grace, the Lord has given us a framework for prayer, and that is what we genuinely call, generally call the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to focus on the version of the Lord's Prayer that we are used to reciting within our church services uh, out of Matthew chapter 6. Um, and before I go into that, uh, you can be maybe getting your Bibles out and turning to Matthew 6, but there's another great quote that I want to read to you that comes from John Calvin himself, that he, which he uh, wrote in the Institutes, and I can't remember uh, the chapter now, but this is what the quote says. The Lord's Prayer contains everything that we can or ought to ask of God. The Lord's Prayer contains everything that we can or ought to ask of God. So it's a complete picture in some sense of what prayer should look like. so before we dig into the, the meat of tonight's supposedly short discussion about the preface to, uh, to the prayer, I want us to have the right context um, so that the Lord's Prayer is placed within the larger scope, which is within the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. It's, it's sandwiched right there in the middle of Matthew 5 to 7. And so, um, if you would please, if you have a Bible, open to chapter 6 of Matthew. Um, I've been reading all of these passages out of the English Standard Version, so if you have a different version, they may read a little differently. And what I'd first like to do is read the first eight verses of Matthew before we read um, the Lord's Prayer in 9 through 13. So, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, read as follows. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So if you had to summarize essentially the the underlying theme in the Sermon on the Mount, the underlying theme is what, what is important is the heart more so than the actions, right? So Jesus is constantly in the Sermon on the Mount harping on it's the heart that matters to God even more so perhaps than the actions. And so he's relaying this message to, first of all, practicing your righteousness in the form of good works and good deeds uh, and saying, don't do them to be seen by men. Do them right, to be seen by God so that he may reward you and not, and not men. And the same thing goes for prayer. 
And it is just after Jesus has made this uh, sort of delineation between pleasing men by what we do in our actions and prayers that he steps right into the very next verse, which is the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. So after he says in verse 8, Do not be like them, be not be like the Gentiles, who heap up lots of empty words. Um, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And so the idea there is that there, there may have been, <clears throat> in that culture there was a lot of paganism, and there was a lot of um, essentially idol worship, and folks thinking that if they, if they said a lot of uh, incantations and recited lots and lots of words, that God would, God would hear them and he would answer their prayers the more that they said. When he's saying, Jesus is completely debunking that idea and saying that God doesn't hear you more because you use more words. Does that make sense? Then following that context, starting then in verse 9, which is the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says this uh, in verses 9 to 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And, of course, the version that we usually recite adds the, the phrase, which is oftentimes called the conclusion of the prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen, which is you will find in the New King James Version and in the King James Version. Um, and the newer translations of the Bible uh, use earlier manuscripts, which do not include that phrase. So it's not included, for example, in the ESV, and it's not included in the NASB. And I don't think it's included in the NIV either. Is that right? So, um, so it's there in the New King James and in the King James. And most of us probably memorized that version. And by the way, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that conclusion part at all. Um, everything that's in that statement is true. And, um, and so it, it is in some of the manuscripts, just not the earliest manuscripts. Okay. Um, so the Puritan preacher Thomas Watson says this about the Lord's Prayer. It can be called the prayer of prayers. It is the best prayer that you can imagine praying, right? Um, and he says that it's perfect in three ways, in its comprehensiveness, in its clarity, and its completeness. It's comprehensive in that the Lord says a great deal in just a very few words. It's clarity, it's clear in that anyone who reads it can understand it. Right, So anyone who reads the Lord's Prayer can get the gist of what Jesus is saying about how we ought to pray. Uh, it's complete, uh, meaning, similar to what John Calvin said in his quote, it's complete in that it contains everything that we can and should pray for. So it is, uh, it's important to note also, just real quickly, that the parallel passage to Matthew 6, 9 to 13 is, is Luke 1 to 4. And it reads a little bit differently. You'll notice in verse 1 in Luke 11, this is an exchange with the disciples. And they say, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And then Jesus goes on to give the Lord's Prayer after they ask him to teach them how to pray. So that, that dialogue isn't included in Matthew's account. Okay? So uh, we're getting really close. So the, the basic structure of the prayer is, is, is not hard to understand. The introduction to the prayer is simply the phrase, pray then like this. The first things that Jesus said, pray then like this. The preface to the prayer, which we're going to cover tonight, is our Father in heaven, 
or as we usually say, our Father which art in heaven. Then come the petitions or the requests of the Lord's Prayer, which will follow over the next several weeks. And then the conclusion, which I just described. So we have an introduction, a preface, petitions, and a conclusion. And tonight, we're going to deal only with the preface, which is our Father, which art in heaven. Like I said, just a few words. Simple teaching, right? Okay. In uh, Matthew 6, verse 9a, the, the introduction to the prayer, Jesus says, pray then like this. And when Jesus says pray like this, the verb pray is not in the it's not in the imperative mood, it's in the indicative mood. In other words, it's not a command. In this passage, it's not a command to pray. What he's saying is that praying should be as natural to the believer as breathing. Right? It's it's assumed that a Christian is going to be praying. So it's like he's saying, there's a similar passage, right, in Matthew 6, 17. And when you fast, da, da, da. It's as if Jesus is saying here, and when you pray, pray then like this. Okay. So you'll notice that Jesus doesn't say, when you pray, use these words. He says, when you pray, pray like this or in this manner. In other words, he's providing a template for prayer. He's providing a pattern for prayer that we can follow. And I think that's pretty well understood by most Christians that Jesus isn't prescribing the exact words for us to use when we pray. He's saying, structure your prayers in this way. And you'll notice the structure of the prayers themselves are very similar to the structure of the Ten Commandments. So in the same way that God gives us the pattern for life through Moses in the Ten Commandments, Jesus gives us the pattern for prayer in a similar way. In the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments deal with our relationship to God. and the last six, our relationship essentially to others in the world and how we operate in the world. This prayer starts in a similar way. It starts with God. And then it, as, it, as you move down through the prayer, we, it ends up talking about what? Everything that deals with life. And so, and so you see this parallel between the Ten Commandments and the giving of, of this prayer. Now, it's important uh, to, to say very briefly here that it doesn't instruct us to mindlessly recite the prayer. So, you know, we read in verse 6 of Matthew 6 that Jesus said, don't, you know, don't use all these empty words. He's saying, you know, he's essentially saying, don't just, don't just recite things, right? Um, because... It can be meaningless, right? If something becomes so familiar to you that you're just constantly reciting a prayer that the words have no meaning to you, then that's essentially of little value as it, as it pertains to coming before God. Now, you may ask yourself, in light of that comment, why do we recite the Lord's Prayer every Lord's Day when we have a worship service? Anybody know why? Do you, does it, do you mind reciting it every Lord's Day? No. Why, why, does it, why do you not mind it? It's a reminder, right? It's a good reminder. I mean, at a minimum, it's a good reminder that the Lord has instructed us to pray this way. Now, there are other reasons why you might recite it, but it's a good reminder. We don't recite it because we think that by reciting it, that we're gaining favor from God by saying those words. But just to be clear, that's not what we're doing. Um, you, some of you know that in... 
Roman Catholicism, this prayer is called, you know, praying the Our Father, and it is and it is used as a form of penance, right? So, in terms of paying the price for your sins, um, it's a form of penance to pray the Our Father a certain number of times in a certain way, and God will bestow forgiveness. Nothing like that at all is true. That that is simply not biblical. Uh, and so Jesus is is clearly not laying out a mindless prayer for us to recite without thinking about the words and the contents of our prayer. So we, we like to recite it because it's a reminder of, of how we should structure our prayers. I hope that makes sense. Um, yeah. Okay. Technical difficulties here. So let's get on to the preface in a little more detail. Um, our Father in heaven, or our Father which art in heaven. So this is, this is a phrase that's filled with deep theology, deep encouragement, and deep hope, I think. Uh, and so what we're going to do is answer the following questions, and I hope fairly quickly here. Um, four questions that I want to answer. First of all, to whom is prayer directed? Second, who can call God Father? Third, what kind of father do we have? And fourth, why does Jesus emphasize that God the Father is in heaven? Why does Jesus emphasize the in heaven part? Okay, so the first question, to whom is prayer directed? It's pretty straightforward. When you pray, pray then like this, our Father, which art in heaven. Prayer is to be, to be directed to God only. Uh, so just as faith must have an object, your prayers must have an object. You know, have you ever heard someone say, well, you just got to have faith. Well, you just got to have faith in what? Right? Faith has an object. It's a meaningless statement. Or you may hear other people say, you know, someone has a difficult time and you say, prayers to you. Prayers to you has no meaning. What does that mean? When, when people say things like that on Facebook, I want to scream, you know, what do you mean prayers to you? I'm not praying to you. Where prayers are to be directed to God. Now, Jesus says, our Father. So the natural question, at least for me, several years ago was, is Jesus saying that you should never pray to Jesus and that you should never pray to the Holy Spirit? So is he saying it's only permissible to pray to the Father and not to the Son or to the Spirit? And the answer to that is no. He's not saying that it's forbidden to pray to the Son or the Spirit. And why wouldn't it be forbidden? Because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are of one essence. They are, they are all one God. And so there is no harm in praying to the Son and the Spirit in addition to praying to the Father. But I think that what Jesus is doing here is establishing the, the majesty of God the Father um, in the Godhead. So there's nothing wrong with doing that. And I thought it was very providential that this morning we recited the Athanasian Creed, <laughs> which totally emphasizes the Trinity. And um, so that was, that was kind of neat. So prayer is to be directed to God. Prayer is not to be directed. Prayer is not to be directed to angels, to Mary, to saints, dead saints or alive saints, or anyone else. Prayer is not to be directed to anyone other than God. Okay. Now that may be obvious to everyone sitting in this room, but you never know, right? Okay, 
So that's the first question. The second question, who can call God Father? So Jesus starts this prayer in an incredible way by saying, Our Father, Our Father. The prayer is intended for believers. The prayer is not a general prayer for anyone to pray. I would not encourage an unbeliever to pray Our Father. Because God is not the Father of an unbeliever. So Jesus begins with our Father. And this would have been interesting to the Jewish audience because you'll notice, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll notice that the Jewish writers very seldom refer to God as Father. So they they refer to, and in the New Testament, you see them referring to Abraham as their father, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as the fathers, or they may refer to God as the father of the nation. But very seldom do the writers use the expression that God is their father. So this would have been somewhat radical for Jesus to say, when you pray, pray our father. Uh, And just there's a couple of exceptions to that. In Isaiah 63, verse 16, uh, Isaiah writes, For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer, from of, of old is your name. I love that passage. In Isaiah uh, 64, 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. This is familiar. Uh, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. There's, there aren't very many other passages where you see them referring to God as our Father. So it's, it's significant, I think, that Jesus starts the prayer um, in that way. And so there are all sorts of incorrect ideas, though, right, about who can call God Father. Um, the first one, of course, is that old saying, we're all God's children. And that's the prevalent view in the world today, of course. And it's only true in the sense that God has created us all. In fact, Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 says exactly that. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? So Malachi referring to the fact that all people are created by God. And in that sense, all people have God in some sense as a father, um, but certainly not in a spiritual sense. And likewise, there's this notion of universal brotherhood. So not only is it that God is everyone's father, but everyone is my brother. Well, the Bible doesn't see it that way. The Bible distinguishes between brothers and sisters in Christ and neighbors. So every, if you, if you were to think about a large circle or a set which, can, which includes all neighbors, your brothers and sisters in Christ are a subset of everyone who's a neighbor. In other words, all of you are my brothers and sisters in Christ, but you're also my neighbors. Not everybody who's a neighbor is a brother and sister in Christ. For example, the neighbor who lives next to me in Clemson is a Muslim. He's a neighbor, but he's not a brother. So there are some neighbors who are not brothers, but the, but the command from the Lord... What's the greatest commandment? Love thy neighbor as yourself. So I can, love, I can love my Muslim neighbor. I can absolutely love my, my Muslim neighbor. But I cannot love my Muslim neighbor in the same way that I love my brother or sister in Christ. So the Bible makes a distinction between who's a brother and who's a neighbor. And we mustn't ever forget the command is to love the neighbor, even though the neighbor isn't a brother. Does that make sense? But every brother and sister is a neighbor. So I have to love you too. Tag on it. 
kidding. Okay. So the bottom line is this. Every person on the planet that's ever lived has either been a child of God or a child of the devil. Uh, and, and so this prayer is, is telling the children of God that they can come to their father, right? So John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, uh, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And then in John 8, 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. And then 1 John 3, uh, verse 10, it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of, I'm sorry, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So it's important that we recognize, you know, who can be called, who, who can, who can uh, call God their father. So first and foremost, of course, Jesus is able and does repeatedly call God his father. He is the unique eternal son of God. Um, Proverbs 8.23 says, Ages ago I was set up or established at the first, before the beginning of the earth. And of course in uh, John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the unique, eternal Son of God. Second, everyone who is united to Christ by faith can call God Father. Everyone who is united to Christ by faith can call God Father. And how is it that we become united to Christ by faith? Two processes that we have no control over. By election and adoption. By election and adoption. In Ephesians 1, 4-5, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Um, I love that idea that every one of us who are believers are all adopted children. We're, we have all undergone adoption. We are, none of us are natural born children of God. We have all been adopted. And isn't that a great thing to rejoice in? So, those who are united to Christ can call God Father. Just some more, I won't read them all, but some important passages that if you're taking notes, you'll want to jot down. John 1, verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. All who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 6, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And uh, the last verse, there's a couple more. I won't read them all just for the sake of time. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. 
That is why he, that is Jesus, that is why he is not ashamed, not ashamed to call them brothers. I don't know about you, but I just think it's amazing to think that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, our Redeemer, is also our elder brother. That just, that just, sometimes I just weep when I think about the fact that Jesus loved me enough and he came to die for us and he became our elder brother. Now, when I grew up, I didn't have, I don't have a brother. I have two older sisters. But what I wanted more than anything, Ethan probably can relate to this. What I wanted, <laughs> what I wanted more than anything was to have a brother. I would have done anything to have an older brother. I think that would have been so fun and so cool to have an older brother. And I think about Christ as my older brother. That just makes me smile. You know, and to think that we are, as the scripture says, joint heirs with Christ because of this adoption that we have been given. And so this is our brother, Jesus, who says to his siblings, when you pray, pray like this. Our father. Our Father, he's my Father, Jesus is saying, and he's your Father. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, etc. So he is our brother. We are his siblings and God is our Father. I, I don't know if you, if you really need to think about much more tonight other than that. That just, that whole idea just blows my mind. That God would have that kind of love for us that he would send Jesus and that Jesus would make this sacrifice for his people and then he would call us brothers. That just blows my mind. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers. That's, I love that passage. And in that passage in Galatians where it says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. That word can be translated like daddy. We can come to God and call him daddy. And that's an amazing that's an amazing word. I was talking to Jack, was it at the wedding last night about these Hebrew words and their similarity to some Arabic words and things like that. So, so in, in Arabic the word is uh, you can say it as yaba or baba uh, and sometimes abba. So all three are kind of used depending on which part of the Arab world you're you're living in, but it's the same word and it has the same connotation that it's this term of endearment that God because of what Christ has done, we can come into God's presence as if we come into the presence of a loving daddy. And, uh, and this is just remarkable to think about, really. So I'm, I'm thrilled about this, this whole part of the prayer because it's, it's just so rich in God's grace towards us as lost, wretched people whom he's, he has no shame in calling us brothers. I think that's kind of neat. So what kind of father do we have? So we are the children of God. If we believe in Christ, if we have been adopted by him, we are his children. We have an eternal father. Revelation uh, 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Our father will not die. Our earthly fathers, sadly, will one day pass, but our eternal father never dies. Second, we have a perfect and faultless father. In Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We have a wise Father. Romans 16.27, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. I know there are other passages that speak of the wisdom of God, but 
Um, I just wanted to at least include that one. We have a loving father. 1 John 4, verse 16. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. God is merciful. I would just encourage you to jot down a couple of passages. Um, Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a merciful and gracious. You are. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And God is a provider. Um, in 1 Timothy 6, 17, part, part of that verse, he says, um, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And finally, we have a father who disciplines us. Uh, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son that he believes, that, sorry, that he receives, every son that he receives. So we have that kind of father. Uh, and, that's, and that should give us confidence to come boldly before the throne of grace with whatever request we might have. So very quickly, in just a couple of minutes, I want to talk about the phrase, in heaven. Our Father which art in heaven, or our Father who is in heaven, or our Father, or our Heavenly Father, which many of us usually start our prayers that way. It's, uh, I did a little bit of a study, and I found that um, in the book of Matthew alone, uh, just in Matthew, eight times Jesus uses the phrase, my Father in heaven, or my Father who is in heaven, or my Heavenly Father. So referring to himself, he says that eight times just in the book of Matthew. And it seems as if Jesus is emphasizing the majesty and greatness of the Father who sent him. He's, every time he talks about the Father, he talks about him being in heaven. And, uh, and then in John six fifty one, he says about himself, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So there's this way in which Jesus seems to be pointing to the greatness and majesty of God. So he constantly uses this phrase, my father who's in heaven. And then uh, regarding us, he says 12 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in different variations, he says, your father in heaven, your father who is in heaven, or your heavenly father. So again, there's this emphasis that he wants us to understand that God is above and we are below. There's the greatness and majesty of God and then there's us. <laughs> we're human. We're frail. But God is great and he's in heaven. Uh, so the Heidelberg Catechism asks this question related to this particular uh, passage of Scripture. In the Heidelberg Catechism, question 121, the question is this, why is it here added, which art in heaven? And this is the answer that it gives. Uh, Lest we should form any earthly conceptions of God's heavenly majesty, and that we may expect from his almighty power all things necessary for soul and body. So lest we should form any earthly conceptions of God's heavenly majesty, and that we may expect from his my almighty power, all things necessary for soul and body. So let me give you the Jeff Carufi 
distillation of what that says. God is omnipresent. God fills heaven and earth. He does not exist in time and space. He can be everywhere at any time, which means that he can hear your prayers at all times, no matter where you are. Because wherever you are, he is there. Right? Secondly, he's omnipotent. He has all power and he has all resources to fulfill every need, body and soul. So the, the answer is Jesus includes which art in heaven to remind us that it is only God who is everywhere. He's not a man. He's not like your earthly father. He's not finite. He doesn't have finite capacity. He doesn't have finite resources. He has unlimited resources and he's everywhere. And he's also all powerful and can provide anything and everything that we need. So it's a reminder of that. And so I just want to read a couple of passages to you that I, that I thought were really, really um, useful in understanding this. Uh, I like these catechism questions a lot. I think they're helpful, but they're never a replacement for Scripture. And very often the questions are constructed from, directly from Scripture. So, so I think they are helpful. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 to 24. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So what he's saying is, am I not close and far away? I'm both. I'm both. So he's everywhere. In Ephesians 10, this is speaking about Jesus. I love the parallel between these two passages. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. That he might fill all things. Jesus. And then there's the omnipotent part, of course, which is terribly important. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And in Romans 10, 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. So really, um, I think the, the emphasis of in heaven is that God's provision is enough. We can go to him, we can pray this prayer, and as we go through the petitions, we'll see that they're pretty deep as well. But the point is that Jesus has given us everything we need. God has given us everything that we need. We can come to him as children and ask him for anything. So I really want to close um, with these encouraging words from Ephesians 1:3 along those lines. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You can thank Jesus today that we can come boldly to our Father who's in heaven. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you are, in fact, um, the God who provides. Thank you that you are our Heavenly Father. I thank you, Lord, that you are greater than any earthly father that we can imagine. And that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And we thank you for this, um, the wonder of the Lord's Prayer, which, which teaches us how to approach you in prayer. I pray, God, that we would uh, think deeply about your words this week and that, that this would resonate in our hearts and that we would come boldly before you in a way that pleases you. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.